0: Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitter's acceleration. Why don't you make that
1: a double? Modern Bar
0: Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 171 of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining us for this interview episode where we track down the best and brightest minds in the spirits and cocktail world so that we can share their secrets with you. This time around, we have the perfect guest to help you get ready for making cocktails this holiday season. I'm joined by Aaron Goldfarb, author of the books Hacking Whiskey and, most relevant to this interview, Gather Around Cocktails, drinks to celebrate usual and unusual holidays. Aaron has been one of the most prolific spirits and cocktail writers of the past two decades, and he's a self-professed eggnog fanatic, so you can imagine all the fun stuff we get into during this interview. But first, let's pause just for a moment so that you can make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is The Gobbler, which is a cheeky culinary riff on your favorite boozy, stirred drinks. According to Aaron, quote... Eating a gigantic, gluttonous, tryptophan-laden meal is always fun. The only problem is that you don't get to celebrate with friends. That's why the last few years have seen the emergence of Friendsgiving. It's a Thanksgiving, but with the family you chose. It's usually held a weekend or two before the real Thanksgiving, and I wanted to give it a cocktail with a little more oomph, one that mimics the flavors in everyone's favorite leftovers sandwich, the gobbler. To make this large format cocktail, you'll need one and a half cups, i.e. 12 ounces, i.e. about half a bottle of Wild Turkey 101 bourbon, four ounces of Laird's Applejack, which is an American apple brandy, four ounces of spiced cranberry syrup, which we'll cover in a second, and 24 dashes of celery bitters, about three dashes per drink. There's a lot of versions out there, but Aaron calls for a product by The Bitter Truth. Now, the first thing you're gonna to wanna to do is make your cranberry syrup. For the full recipe, I'm gonna refer you to the book, but it's basically a combination of cranberries, sugar, dry white wine, and traditional holiday spices reduced to a delicious syrup on the stovetop, then strained. Once you've got your syrup made and cooled down to at least room temperature, add it to a pitcher with the bourbon and Applejack and give them all a good Stir. You'll serve this drink on the rocks by pouring two and a half ounces of your booze and syrup mixture into the glass, and then topping with three dashes of celery bitters and the coup de gras—a stuffing cube garnish. You're also going to want to make these ahead of time, but they're super easy. According to Aaron, all you need to do is preheat your oven to 400 degrees, mold and cut your favorite stuffing recipe into one-inch cubes, place them on a baking sheet, and drizzle with olive oil and then pop them in the oven. After about 10 minutes, you'll flip them over, then drizzle with gravy, and bake until they're dark brown and crisp. Once they're cool, you can serve these garnishes in your gobbler cocktails on a cocktail pick, but if you don't have one of those lying around, a toothpick will do just fine. So now that you're all set up with a large format cocktail to impress your friends and family this Thanksgiving, Let's turn our attention back to the interview. In this convivial and wide-ranging chat with drinks writer Aaron Goldfarb, some of the topics we discuss include Aaron's experience writing for major publications in the drink space beginning in the early 2000s, straight through the cocktail renaissance to today, including his recent Tales of the Cocktail Spirited Award for Best Cocktail and Spirits Writing. The story of Gather Around Cocktails, which started with an eggnog obsession and grew into a book that's on a mission to make parties more fun and less lame. Of course, we dig into eggnog a bit, talking about the most important tools and techniques for batching this rich, creamy drink, and even some of the surprising ingredients you can use as dietary substitutes. Looking at you, avocado. Then we take a trip around the calendar year, dipping in and out of seasons and occasions for drinking and learning about the little things you can do to crank your most festive occasions straight to 11. We talk about everything from my yearly tradition of wearing tricorn hats and drinking colonial era punch while watching The Patriot every 4th of July to the innovative cocktails that Aaron and others have designed to complement traditional Jewish holidays, which can sometimes be solemn occasions. Along the way, we cover why the Gimlet is the perfect quarantine drink, how to order a frozen daiquiri in the style of Hunter S. Thompson, and much, much more. Pound for Pound, Gather Around Cocktails is one of the most fun and technically useful cocktail books I've come across in a long time. So if you're trying to moderate your book purchases, I hope that my recommendation and the sleek profile of this annually self-renewing reference guide will tip the scales in favor of adding it to your collection. With that, it's my pleasure to present this festive interview with spirits and cocktail writer, Aaron Goldfarb. Aaron, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So as we like to do here, could you just, before we jump into gather around cocktails, just introduce yourself to our listeners and explain who you are and what you do.
1: Yeah, my name's Aaron Goldfarb. I'm a writer, novelist, journalist. I, I pretty much write anything people will pay me to write. Uh, I suppose I'm on this show because I do a lot of booze journalism for places like Esquire, The New York Times, Punch, Vine Pair, Whiskey Advocate, pretty much any place that'll publish it, I've written for. Um, and I've written two booze books in the last couple of years. Uh, one's called Hacking Whiskey, which is of course about whiskey. And the most recent one's called Gather Around Cocktails, which is probably the worst named book to have during a pandemic, but it's about gathering all your friends together during holidays and celebrations and finding the perfect drink to enjoy as you gather around.
0: Yeah, um, well, obviously the holidays are approaching, so that was certainly uh, one of the occasions why we wanted to reach out and and, and have this interview, but before we jump into that, I, I wanted to just ask you to speak a little bit about your experiences and your career in um, spirits and cocktail journalism because you write for a number of outlets that I tend to find highly reputable. And for context, when I'm you know Googling around for cocktail recipes or trying to figure out what trusted source to use, like a lot of the ones on your resume happen to be the ones that I go to. So, um, can you just talk a little bit about, I guess, what good uh, booze journalism is and maybe what you strive to do in that space and maybe any, any like relative uh, relevant experiences in, in that vein?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, you know, I'm a freelance writer, and I've always been a freelance writer, which means I'll write anywhere. I'll, <laughs> I'll write for non-reputable places, too, believe me. And I, I certainly have. Um, you know, just like there's been a cocktail revolution of the last two decades, just like craft beer has emerged, just like bourbon has again started booming. Uh, there's been a reemergence of places to write about alcohol. I mean, I graduated college in 2001 and that, that was certainly not a career plan nor a job you could really have. Uh, I'm not even sure what was being published in 2001 because I wouldn't have been reading it. Um, I think Whiskey Advocate was still around then, maybe Wine Spectator, but there was not a lot of places to write about these things. Uh, I was naturally you know, a fan of, of drinking. I was trying to become a writer I was trying to become a screenwriter. I was trying to become a novelist. I, I did end up writing a few novels. And through my writing journey in New York, I was visiting craft beer bars. I was enjoying all the bourbons that were hitting the market. I, I mean, I remember when, when you know, Pappy was was on shelves. I was going to all the cocktail bars that were were coming out in New York. New York was kind of where the cocktail renaissance began right around the time I got out of college, in fact, and and I certainly couldn't afford $15 drinks then, but I was lucky enough to have friends that would buy them for me. So, you know, naturally, I, I, I built an expertise, or at least a knowledge without much plans to ever write about it. Um, and I kind of fell accidentally into it. Uh, you know, I wrote a few novels, and Esquire liked my writing and asked me if I would be up for writing anything for them. And I kind of just appointed myself the guy who was going to write about craft beer at the time, which I was really into. David Wondrich was writing about cocktails then. And I gradually kind of grew more into a whiskey writer and a cocktail writer. I looked around at the landscape and you had guys like David Wondrich and Robert Simonson who were experts on the history of cocktails. And I said to myself, well, I'm never gonna be that good or that knowledgeable. So I I need a different tact. you know, I've always kind of been a guy who's looking at what's trendy. What, what are people talking about online? I you know, I was an early writer to start tracking bourbon secondary market on Facebook and on eBay and on forums throughout, and that's kind of the niche I fell into.
0: Yeah, I, I love that. Uh, I love that as you're talking about your career, you're like you're like well, I guess Wondrich and Simonson are over there, so I'll be over here. Uh, it, it's quite, you know, for 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 listeners. I mean, many of our listeners are familiar with those guys and, and their work. But it's um, you know, back in the time when you started it, it was sort of a scarce landscape, and and now the um, both I think the signal and the noise in the space are both stronger. Uh, and so it's not it's not that you can't find good journalism out there. It's just that. You know, I think I think you need to do a little bit of trial and error as a consumer. And you need to find um, the publications that tend to resonate with you. For me, Punch and Imbibe are sort of my two recipe publications. You know, if I if I have a recipe, I'm going to compare the Punch recipe and the Imbibe or the Imbibe recipe and see not so much what they differ on occasionally, but more what they have in common and sort of the historical high points that kind of get tagged along in there and and that is the two points that I normally use to make a line when I'm trying to advance a cocktail recipe on the podcast. So um, the other thing I wanted to bring up is I recently listened to your episode on the speakeasy. You uh, you're the recipient of a spirited award, um, I am, yes. For f- <laughs> which congratulations. Thank uh, you. Do you have the plate? I do.
1: All
0: right. <laughs> We're going to see this plate here. I keep
1: it. I, I keep it close much to my wife's consternation.
0: <laughs> oh, there it is! I love it. I love it. it. Have it you found feel, any create?
1: It, it feels pricey, but I, I looked it up. They don't cost that much to buy engraved plates, but you know.
0: Well, hey, you know, it's a, uh, it's, it's more for the, uh, for the sort of the shock value, being like, yeah, look at, I got one of these things. Um, right. But uh, can you can you just talk a little bit about that article and just um, you know tell folks uh, what was so special about it?
1: Yeah, I mean that article, you know. It, I, you know, I'm kind of acting silly with with my plate here, and I, I feel kind of silly about winning it. You know, most of my articles I write, I do come up with the idea. This uh, article, my friend Lizzie Monroe came up with the idea. She's she's got a, a a good knack for knowing things I will will do do well with, and she doesn't even really have to tell me much other than, hey, go find Janae. And when she pitched that idea to me, I said, okay, this is going to be a real hit if I pull it off. Um, you know, I thought, why would Janae, a, a woman who's been mocked on the internet for ten years, talk to to me? Talk to uh, 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 another hetero white dude who, if she looked him up, would see that he's written for all sorts of, you know, clickbaity broy type media over the last ten years. So, you know, and she was not easy to find, by the way, because she's uh, changed her 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 uh, maiden name. But I found her, and I. Wrote her a very polite email. I said, I'd love to hear your side of the story. And she later on told me, well, you know, you're the first person who ever asked to hear my side of the story. And um, she told me a great story. And I, I pretty much just wrote it down and put it in order. And it was one of the easier stories I've ever written. And it, it people loved it. People were people loved Janae, though. They, they wanted to know what was happening to her. So it, it became a minor sensation. And I'm very grateful uh, so many people liked it.
0: Yeah, and for context, for anyone who hasn't seen the article or, or heard of Janae, Janae was basically called in by a what was it, mahalo.com, mahalo.com or something? Yeah. Some some website that decided they want to publish a bunch of educational content on cocktails. And uh they did the thing where uh, that, you know, like you can pay people by the project or you can pay like by the amount of time. And, and they decided they were going to pay by the amount of time, which normally means it's going to be more expensive. But they decided they were just going to basically like locker in a room for eight hours yeah. over the course of a couple of days and do something like like what was the number of cocktail recipes was, that they knocked uh, out?
1: It was one hundred fifty a day. Yeah,
0: one hundred cocktails on video no good. They uh, yeah, have reusing ice, uh, just no like muddling with a wooden spoon. So um, we'll link to that article in the show notes page and, and probably at least one of those videos, so that folks can go and see that. But basically, you know, it was a it was an early cocktail phenomenon that uh, that drew a lot of a lot of uh, eyebrow raises, but it also a lot of laughs. And and so I think in in that that sort of weird alchemy of it gave it legs over the course of 10 years and made it one of the most popular, you know, YouTube cocktail videos series of all time. So um, it just kind of shows the the breadth and the scope of what we can write about in the spirits and cocktail world. It's not just, you know, who's drinking what it's, you know, the, there are other sort of cultural phenomena. Uh, and, and that's one of the things that I enjoy about, about your work. And I think that's a good segue to kind of talk about gather, around cocktails. Um, because like the thing that I immediately enjoyed about the book is that you, you seem to have written it to solve a very specific problem. And, uh, I'd love to hear you kind of articulate that problem that you kind of announce in the introduction and then, you know, just give us, uh, the approach that you took in the book.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, so my, my, Previously, I'd written a book called Hacking Whiskey with this uh, publisher, Dovetail, and I had such a great experience, and the book did very well, and I, I got paid pretty well. And as, as my book tour was wrapping up, I said, oh, man, I got to work with these guys again. That was really fun. It was fairly lucrative. I really got to work with them again. Uh, so you know, I pitched him some more ideas, and I pitched him. I love eggnog. I pitched him an idea. How about an entire eggnog book? you know, single drink books are hot right now. You had Brian Bartle's um, uh, Bloody Mary book, of course, Robert Simonson's old fashioned book. I said, let's do an entire eggnog book. And they said, that's the worst idea ever. How about we do a book that's partially eggnog, but then cocktails for every other holiday. And I thought, okay, that's a good idea too, because eggnog is really the only like official holiday cocktail you know, what's the official cocktail of Thanksgiving, which is coming up? What's the official cocktail of Halloween? What's the official cocktail of Valentine's Day? None of them have official cocktails and most of them don't even have something you could think of. You know, it's not like there's several cocktails vying for the official cocktail of, of, you know, the 4th of July. So uh, I believe there's 48 uh, recipes in the book for 48 holidays or gatherings or events events, i.e. Super Bowl party or whatnot, you know, Kentucky Derby that has an official cocktail, obviously. Um, and I, I try to name what's going to be the official cocktail for each of those with help from bartender friends, with help from, you know, drink makers who have come up with these official cocktails in their own minds, who have said to themselves, why isn't there a Hanukkah cocktail? Um, and there's a great Hanukkah cocktail in the book from Heim Dowerman uh, here in New York. Um, who, who's Jewish and came up with, with a Hanukkah cocktail I love. Um, and, uh, you know, any holidays that didn't have cocktails, I would try to come up with one myself. And there's, there's certainly some cheeky holidays in there. There's, you know, holidays that probably don't even need a cocktail, you know, stuff like Yom Kippur. I'm not sure if that needed a cocktail, but, uh, you know, that adds to the fun and irreverence of, of what I was trying to accomplish. Um, and again, beautiful photography from Dubtail Press, who did a great job with my previous book.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a really fun book. Uh, and I think, um, you know, one of the things that, that I really love about it is, is that you sort of un- you kind of call out a problem with our culture. Uh, it's a problem that maybe not everyone would agree with, but it's one that I tend to agree with, which is I, I think somewhere along the line, you say maybe that time was the 90s, uh, like parties got lame. Like right. it, it started, it started to be just a bunch of, you know, suburban adults getting together and having polite conversations with other suburban adults. With the most interesting thing possibly there being sangria, which was just wine dumped over fruit. And, right. and, and, uh, I, I agree. I think, I think more parties than not tend to be lame. Um, can, can you talk about just like, that opinion and, and like what led you to it? Because I find it really fascinating.
1: Yeah. I mean, when I started going to colleges first, I mean, parties first in college in the late nineties, and then as I became an adult and, and moved to Manhattan in the early aughts, and I started going to these parties, you know, it, it was, you know, show up with a six pack of Bud Light and plop it on a table, drop a bottle of Bacardi and a two liter of Diet Coke and all right, this is the party. And I I would always think to myself, man, this is, you know, I could do this on a street corner. Um, New York's an interesting place for parties because we have very tiny apartments. So how are you going to knock anyone's socks off? Um, When I started living with my uh, future wife in, in 2012 and we started hosting cocktail parties, I tried to put in insane efforts into always creating something for the party, whether that was a homemade eggnog which you still don't really see a lot of people do, even though it's quite easy. You know, mold wine in, in winter, or, you know, just putting out a big punch. Uh, you know, when we got married, I registered for a giant punch bowl and, and there's nothing easier and more fun than making a one of a kind punch. Uh, so that's what the book's pushing for, you know, don't just plop a, a few bottles of, of $20 wine on your table and open a bag of Tostitos and, and call that a party you know try try to think of something cr- clever try to put some effort in try to give people a reason to go wow that that was cool i've never seen something like that before
0: every year around the 4th of july my uh, good friends and i we get together and we watch mel gibson's the patriot and nice. uh in, in addition to the uh, you know quantities of, of light beer or uh, or uh, cheap loggers that are consumed, there is also I always, I always uh, go out of my way to make a traditional colonial era punch. So we have Man. we have uh, you know tricorner hats, we have <laughs> traditional colonial era punch, and and the other other stuff. And and I find that 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 makes it for me. You know you know it's it's part part of the ritual of doing that thing is the time I spend in my own kitchen, creating that punch, batching it up and, you know, thinking up like, all right, what am I going to do this year? All right. Well, last year, you know, we featured a Jamaican overproof. Maybe this year I want to feature like uh, a Demerara or something, uh, something along those lines, you know? So even, even something like that, trying to impress the same people, even the same, like two or three people year after year is, is, is enough of a, Impetus for me to sort of like get excited about the holiday, and uh, even if the hangover the next day makes it really, really tough, uh, <laughs> it's still something that that we all kind of um, you know get on each other to to continue doing year after year, and and we we've probably done it like six or seven years in a row now. So um, that's my little holiday anecdote. But um, one thing I want to talk about with this book is is sort of the format of it because I, I find it really interesting. It's both encyclopedic in that. It's a list of holidays, right? It's like a holiday and cocktail mashup reference guide, but it's also cyclical. And it's sort of like, you know, it's almost like religious books are cyclical. The the Bible, the various, um, you know, various um, like uh, monotheistic religious texts tend to kind of circulate over the course of whatever the religious year tends to be. And I, I think it sort of follows that in a Sometimes religious, sometimes just like Stonehenge cycle, like where we're following the, the cycle of the season. So could you talk like was that an easy decision, like in terms of how to set that up or did that come somewhere along the, the drafting process?
1: Well, it's interesting. You notice that it was actually difficult for us to decide how to structure it, you know, structuring it from, you know, New Year's Day, January 1st, all the way to New Year's Eve felt a little weird. I wanted to start kind of with the holiday season, the the Christmas, Hanukkah, winter season, and then wrap it back around again. Um, I also thought those were the most exciting recipes. Those were going to be the recipes that most drew people into buying the book because that's when people are most throwing parties. Uh, so that's what we ultimately decided on. Um, I can't remember the second what the first recipe is in the book, but I I remember it starts early with the eggnogs and, and wraps its way back around again to, uh, to uh, fall and, and, and winter and another year. Yeah. That was totally intentional.
0: Yeah. And, and uh, well, it, it also makes sense in that like you wanted to do the nogs. So you front load the nogs and right, it's like, oh, and, so, and, and suddenly you're going right. You suddenly you're sort of on your way around the, uh, around the sun for uh, a revolution. So, um, yeah, I, I just, um, I, I really love the uh, the eggnog section because, you know, one thing that became apparent, you know, you mentioned that, of course, you you tend to throw these, uh, these eggnog parties. You say that uh, you've even done some eggnog aging. Uh, so I was wondering if you might be willing to dive into some pro tips for our listeners, because obviously, you know, the guy who wrote a book called Hacking Whiskey is clearly familiar with things like Fat washing and clarification, like all the like sort of science-y projects. So I'm wondering if you can take some of that technical knowledge and apply it to our listeners who probably have the basic kitchen tools and maybe a decent set of bar tools that you you would expect to have in, in a cocktail aficionado's home.
1: Yeah. Eggnog is kind of the one cocktail where you need more culinary tools or baking tools than bar tools. And I actually hate baking. So it's funny. I love eggnog um a stand mixer is critical unless i think i say in the book unless you have the forearms of roger and nadal because you're not going to you're not going to be getting uh your your egg whites uh fluffed up so you you need that um and other than that Eggnog is really hard to screw up. you know. It's, it's booze, cream, sugar, and, and eggs whipped together and, and blended. And, and it's not like a two-ounce drink where if you, you get it a quarter ounce wrong, it's going to taste off. If I get my eggnog too boozy, I dump in more milk. If I get it too thick, I dump in more milk. If it's not sweet enough, you dump in more sugar. It's something you can really constantly tweak. It's something you can use just about any spirit. Um, I've never made a gin eggnog, but I'm sure it's pretty good. You can use brandy. You can use bourbon, rum, cognac, armagnac, aged tequila. You know, just about anything works, and that's what makes it fun to tweak. You can add spices and seasonings if you want or not. You can shave on a little nutmeg at the end or dump in loads of of cinnamon or whatnot. It's really something you can tweak because sugar, fat, and booze is a a recipe that never fails.
0: Exactly, exactly. Now, is there a particular – order of operations that is either recommended or that you tend to follow when you are adding the components to the vessel to be kind of whipped together?
1: Yeah. I mean, if you look, if you Google eggnog and probably look up the first 20 recipes, every single one is going to have a different methodology for how they do it. But everything ends up in the same place together. Another critical thing for eggnog is having a lot of damn space, which, you know, in New York is, is difficult, you know, you're gonna need several giant mixing bowls and then a final vessel to, to, to put it all together. Um, I usually separate the eggs which is is never fun uh, you know you do that thing where you kind of dance the eggs back and forth between the shells and then I add all the components to the uh, yolks uh, that's sugar uh, sugar and booze um, I, I whip the the whites, and then I fold them into that mixture and then I start adding um, milk and cream mm. and then tw- and then tweaking from there.
0: Yeah. And, and so that process in it's in and of itself is inherently interesting because we have single serving what we might call approximations of Nogs in in the flip format. Right. That it's yeah. a you know, you take a shot of booze, you take usually some sort of liqueur or Amaro. I'm personally very partial to the fernet flip. Uh, and you add the you know you add the whole egg to the cocktail shaker. Depending on who you ask, you might do uh, a dry shake. Depending on who you ask, you might do a reverse dry shake. You know there there, there are uh, many varieties of egg experience, uh, but but I I do think that for people who are curious about the science of it and pe- people who are interested in either formally or informally keeping track of the outcomes of their large format projects at home. I think that the separation of the whites from the yolks is at least initially a really good idea because it allows you to kind of isolate your variables and, and sort of see in real time as you fold in those egg whites, well, well what happens, you know? And I think that that's from the technician's standpoint a glimpse into the cocktail shaker. When the cocktail goes into the cocktail shaker, you don't know what's going on. It's getting beaten up in there. You know, it's getting diluted, you know, it's getting mixed, but you can't really see what's going on visually. And so I think what's compelling to me about the, the instructions that you just gave is that you kind of like really get to, you can really kind of fine tune it and, and see really engage with the process. Um, Do you you have any um, recommendations in terms of um, service methods, Uh, hot, cold? If it's cold, are you going to serve the nog over ice? Well,
1: you know, I'd say my biggest tip is to prepare it at least a day early if you're having a party. I feel like even a day, really, things start happening. And I've made eggnogs, you know, the night before a party and tasted. it. I thought, damn, this is just not very good. But I, you know, I have gallons of it right now. So what am I going to do? I'm not going to start over, and throw it in the fridge. And you know, 18 hours later, it's incredible because it mellows out. You know, I've built up that body with the egg white, but it's it's kind of relaxed now. You know, the the alcohol's burning off a little bit. Uh, so I'd say throwing it in the fridge and letting it just mellow for for an overnight is is great. If you can mellow it for a week or two, even better. Um, I always serve it, serve it neat in a glass straight out of the, out out of the fridge. I don't like it too cold, but you know, if you put it out on your kitchen Island or or counter or table and it it sits there for a few hours as the party goes on it, it's, it's a good temperature.
0: So are there any, um, sorry, I'm just, I'm fascinated by Nogs and we're coming (laughs) up on this season. Um, in terms of substitutes or um, dietary things, if let's say that one of our listeners was um, trying to create a vegan-friendly nog or something uh, that simply uses something like uh, a coconut milk in it or a coconut cream, for example, uh, are there any things to look out for if you'd start diverging from the you know, full egg cream and booze format. Is there any format that, that is, is in your experience, really easy to, to kind of morph into from the dietary perspective? And, or are there any things to kind of look out for and avoid?
1: Well, you know, I haven't made a lot of vegan or, you know, vegan eggnogs in my life. Although there are two vegan eggnog recipes in the book and both are quite good. Um, they use uh, avocados, which add a nice creaminess and richness and don't impart that much flavor when you're you're adding booze and whatnot so i'd say that's good um i I believe there's there's egg replacements out there i've I've never tried those but you know again you know i think the vegans and vegetarians know better than me what what simulates milk for them and what simulates eggs for them better better than i certainly do you know this if anything, it's probably easier because you have no fear of curdling or separation when you're using um, non-eggs or non-non dairy products. But um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 like any drink, you know. Slot something in for that creaminess. Slot something in for the the fluffiness of the egg. You know, a lot of people use aquafaba in egg white drinks. That um, if they're if they're vegan, that's uh, chickpea chickpea water. I've never heard of an aquafaba. Um, Eggnog, and that would certainly take a a ton of uh, a ton of uh, chickpea water to to do. You start adding chickpea water and avocados, and and pretty soon I think you're going to have like a, a Greek salad instead of an eggnog. But um, uh, yeah, you know, it's it's it can be done. And as I said, booze and fat always works.
0: Yeah, and well, and I think uh, eggnogs too. I mean. Eggnogs are supposed to be a little bit naughty. They're supposed to be a little bit cheeky, you know. Some, you know, it's something that you would give a kid minus the booze. Yeah. And yeah. so, well, you add the booze in there. It's basically, you know, it's an it's a cold it's an adult milkshake served holiday style, right? Um. Well, that's great. I and I I love I love the nog section in your book. Um. I'm uh you know I'm a, a, I tend to maybe not every year, but I almost always make a coquito, which is yeah. sort of the port the Puerto Rican. Uh, equivalent there using um, coconut milk and you know one of the various coconut sweeteners um, so so that that's also an option to look into if, if folks are um, on the on the dietary um, replacement train kind of trying to figure out what exactly they can they can do to um, accommodate for their guests so um, let's talk about some of the other drinks in your books um, as you went season by season did you find yourself identifying like any trends or any common sets of ingredients that that you found yourself drawn to more than others? Because I know that when we speak with either our listeners or other guests, they tend to say that they're seasonal drinkers and that their favorite cocktails, for example, vary season by season. So is that something that you encountered while writing the book?
1: Well, yeah, of course. Um, you know, I think. It's interesting when most people talk about seasonal drinks, they talk about what spirit they're using, you know, whiskey for the winter and maybe gin for the summer or whatnot. Um, I think the drinks are made more seasonal by by the modifiers, by not the booze, by what fruits and what juices are being used. You know, you might add, you know, cucumber and lime in the summer to a punch, where whereas you know, there's a Thanksgiving punch that has, has cranberries and, and rosemary and thyme in it. So I think with, with seasonal things, you're looking for more, what is what is being grown right now. Go to your local farmer's market and, and buy what's there. You, you know, you're not going to probably have a winter peach punch, but you'd have a, a peach punch in the summer, for instance. So I think that's a, a good tip to just see what's at the farmer's market, what's being grown at the moment.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, and then, one we we mentioned this earlier but the um the cocktails that were sort of specifically designed around the the Jewish holidays were right. really compelling to me because you you don't see a whole lot of stuff out there now maybe on the day or the yeah. week you know preceding one of these these holidays you'll see an article or two from a publication or two and then they'll sort of fade into obscurity because Chances are it's it's a custom cocktail um, that that just doesn't have legs, or it's such a close variation on a classic cocktail that people are like, eh, fine. What was it like creating those cocktails, and uh, can you just walk our listeners through a couple of them as exemplars?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm Jewish, if you couldn't guess, from my last neg and, and my love of eggnog. Um, I, I love eggnog because I was uh, you know denied it as a, a young Jewish boy, so... Um, but having said that I, I'd also love, uh, some Jewish drinks for Jewish holidays. And, and even though people don't believe it, Jews actually do like to drink a lot. Um, uh, so I, you know, I looked at the, the Jewish holidays on the counter calendar and, you know, a lot of Jewish holidays are incredibly serious. They're not, they're not, uh, we don't have mascots like the Easter bunny or Santa Claus. We don't have, you know, giant spreads at Dwayne Reed with candies and pastels and whatnot. They're very serious. They're holidays where you don't eat food for 24 hours or you're in synagogue for six hours. Uh, so I had to identify the holidays where you'd even have the possibility of drinking. Um, Hanuk- Hanukkah is an obvious one. Um, and as I mentioned, uh um, uh, uh cocktail, uh, which is meant to um, replicate a suffragette. Uh, uh, I don't even know how to pronounce it. I'm a Jew. It's, it's kind of, it's the fried jelly donut that's kind of the, second most favorite food stuff after latkes for Hanukkah. And it's, it's a quite easy cocktail to make both single serving and batched. And um, I enjoy that one. Um, uh, What else did I have? Purim is actually the Jewish drinking holiday. You're supposed to drink so heavily that you forget all the grievances held against us. Um, So for that one, um, I said to myself, well, uh, hamantashans are the most famous thing we eat on Purim. I wonder if anyone on planet Earth has ever made kind of a drinkable hamantashan. And I found this woman in Ohio who actually did. So that was just send her an email and let's let's get you in the book. Um, you know, so she makes she makes um, cocktail flavored hamantashans. Those are the kind of triangle cookies if you if you are not Jewish, which are typically in kind of. Boring, like grandma flavors, like poppy seed and prune and whatnot. So she makes like daiquiri, hamentaschen's, and and margarita hamentaschen's. And on the reverse, she makes makes cocktails that that resemble those. And then uh, what what's the other holiday I have included? Can't remember. Oh, Passover, of course. Passover is another holiday where we drink. We're supposed to drink four glasses of, of wine during the the seder. Well, you know, I'm not really a wine drinker, uh, and you know, a lot of younger people aren't. So I said to myself, what if what if there were four perfect cocktails we could drink during the uh, the seder? Now, this is one I came up with myself. And um, Passover has lots of rules. You you can't actually can't drink grain-based spirits on Passover. You can't eat bread. You're not supposed to eat leavened bread. Uh, you're supposed to eat matzo, of course. What you can drink is agave spirits because that's not grain. Um, so I made essentially a New York sour uh, using uh, tequila, egg white. E- eggs are a big part of the Seder plate. So that's an egg white drink as well. And then I made a haroset syrup. That's a kind of fruity little berry dish that's a side. And then it uh, includes a float of uh, kosher wine. So you do get a little wine in that cocktail.
0: I love it. I love it. Uh did did you ever think to uh include a uh a hangover after the uh, or a hangover remedy after the the perm section?
1: A hangover after the perm section. No, that's a good idea though.
0: Yeah, maybe maybe for the next the next print, the next printing of the book, you're going to want to do that. Because (laughs) if I've got Aaron Goldfarb encouraging me to uh, to get hammered on the day that I'm supposed to get hammered, I'd like I'd like a little bit of assistance the next day. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Cool. I guess the next thing that we need to ask kind of wrapping up here is. Um, You know, you've got all these holidays, both religious and secular, both major and minor. You know, we've got the uh, we've got the Groundhog Day cocktail that uh, can be served warm or cold, depending on whether or not uh, whichever rodent is currently the artist known as Puxitani Phil sees his shadow, um, which I love. So, you know, it gets, it gets as, as trivial as groundhog day and, and as, you know, serious as, as the Jewish high holidays and everything in between both national and, you know, non-national. Are there any holidays that you either had to omit or that if you were to do another printing of the book that you would want to, to slide in there with a cocktail?
1: Well, one of the toughest omittances was, and, and it had been written up and it had even been photographed, uh, was another Jewish cocktail. I guess they, they didn't want the book to be too Jewish. <laughs> it, was, uh, it, was, uh, it was actually for Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the holiday where we fast for, for the entire day. And uh, at the end of the holiday, at uh, sunset, Jews have what's called break fast. Uh, where after not eating all day they kind of gorge themselves on typical Jewish foods but often bagels and locks and and whatnot so I thought but but th- but there's never drinks at breakfast maybe there's a glass of wine or something but there's never drinks uh, so I thought what about a cocktail that would be perfect for breakfast um, and it would supply you with the electrolytes you've been missing all day because you haven't been eating or drinking and that would of course be a Bloody Mary topped with a bagel with locks which is actually a cocktail made uh, at a bar in DC and it's include it's not included in the book but uh, if you email me I'll send you a picture of it
0: that's awesome yeah we would love that for the show notes page what bar do you know offhand jeez um,
1: my mind doesn't work anymore because I drink for every holiday uh, it's uh, <laughs> I've forgotten.
0: We'll, we'll, f- we'll find out and we'll, uh, we'll stick that on the show notes page along with the picture. And it just so happens that we're in, in the midst of a, a series, you know, you mentioned Brian Bartles earlier. Yeah, He's yeah. recently been on the podcast. So uh, we're in the midst of a series called breaking bloody here, where we're nice. taking every ingredient of the bloody Mary and just kind of going ham on it. So, um, that's very exciting. We'll, we'll work that in to the show notes for sure. Um, so, uh, that kind of I think that kind of wraps up the book rather nicely. I mean, it's it's a, it's a pretty efficient, sleek little guide. It does exactly what it says it's going to do. It gives you a it gives you a cocktail for every holiday. Uh, is there anything else that you want to share about that before we jump into a a, a few quick lightning round questions here?
1: Uh, no. Um, you know, as you said, it's slim. It's it's the the recipes are kind of showstoppers, but they're not particularly difficult. You don't need to know any weird skills. A lot of them are large batch cocktails, which pretty much mean overturning bottles into giant vessels, whether that's, you know, igloo coolers or punch bowls or whatever. It, these are kind of foolproof recipes that you really can't screw up and you don't need a lot of tools or techniques to, to, to make, but they're still quite interesting.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and that's actually precisely what I love so much about it is that from a technical standpoint, I feel that I am probably above average in terms of my ability to execute things. Uh, and I found the recipes still really compelling and, and and very, very artistic in 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 their own way. Uh, but you're right. There's, there's really a very low bar in terms of what you actually need. You can find it at the grocery store. You don't even have to go to a cocktail or, you know, mixology shop to, uh, right. to pick anything up. So um, we'll have links to, Gather Around Cocktails on the show notes page, of course, and um, I'm sure that you can uh, purchase it at all major booksellers, right?
1: Absolutely. Some minor ones, too.
0: Awesome. All right. Lightning round. You ready? Uh -uh.
1: Let me get right. Let me take a Diet
0: Coke sip. Do you need to uh, polish that plate before we get started? Let me see. Okay. There we go. Good. Good. All right. Clean plate. Uh, what is your favorite cocktail? And if you don't have a favorite of all time, what's something that you're more recently obsessed with?
1: Well, during the pandemic, uh, I've been drinking a lot of gimlets. I've uh, long had the daiquiri as my favorite cocktail. So that's, you know, kind of a gin daiquiri. And that's been my major cocktail of the pandemic.
0: Hmm. That's. I don't know if that would have struck me as like the pandemic cocktail in that it like requires fresh citrus. Is there a reason why you were drawn to that? Is it that that sort of like refresh, like the Gimlet is like very high on refreshment. Is that why?
1: Oh, the Gimlet to me is like alcoholic Gatorade, lemon lime Gatorade. Uh, You know, a lot of people assume since I'm a a whiskey writer and a whiskey drinker that I drink whiskey cocktails and I don't really, I, I, I drink whiskey neat. And when I'm making cocktails, they're usually agave, rum, or gin cocktails, and they're usually shaken and citrusy. So I don't know. That's what I think. That's awesome.
0: Yeah. Well, we we must all contain multitudes. Um, If you were a cocktail ingredient, what would you be and why? (laughs)
1: You know, I, I I am a big fan of egg white. That seems like a funny answer after all the talk about eggs. You know, it, it kind of it turns some people off, but it, it adds so much uh, beauty and, and texture to, to drinks uh, without adding any flavor. I don't know what that says about me, but I'd be
0: egg white. <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, if you could have a cocktail with anybody in the world, past or present, who would it be? Where would you go? What would you drink? Just kind of paint us a picture.
1: Oh, man. Um there's so many good answers. I should have thought harder about this. I mean, you could think about, you know, any with all the world's legendary martini drinkers like Churchill or, or whatnot having like a 60 to 1 martini or, you know, drinking a, a daiquiri with Hemingway. Um I don't know. I think I'd I'd uh, I once read a story about uh Tom Wolf going out to dinner with uh Hunter S. Thompson and Hunter S. Thompson just kept ordering, uh, rounds of, uh, uh, frozen daiquiris and he'd go another round and then he'd polish them off. So I think I'd like to swap with Tom Wolf there.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. Hunter S Thompson. He, uh, he went hard. That's for sure. Um, what's a common or traditional cocktail ingredient that you've never tasted and why?
1: I never got around to tasting the, I don't know if it's common, those um, charcoal-activated cocktails that were hot for a while. I don't know. They kind of grossed me out. and I guess I guess their time has kind of passed right now. But I, I've, I'm still seeing people making them, even though some people say they kill you. But I, I've never had one, and I plan to never have one.
0: Yeah, I mean, they, uh, they always make an appearance around Halloween because they turn things black. Uh, right. I also have never had one uh, because, like, I know that it's probably not going to if it's at a reputable place, but it just right. looks like the sort of thing that would turn your entire mouth black. Yeah. You know, so you don't want to, like, just – like There's nothing, uh, yeah, nothing, appe-
1: nothing appealing to me about them.
0: Yeah, for sure. Last up here, do you have any unusual or controversial beliefs in the spirits and cocktail space?
1: I have a couple, and I <laughs> – Number one, I hate canned cocktails and I cannot believe this trend is catching on. And I can't believe every single booze writer is writing stories about how great uh, canned cocktails are. We, You know, we've spent the last 20 years kind of rebelling against non-fresh ingredients and all this crap. And now all of a sudden everyone's putting canned cocktails on the market and people are acting like, you know, we should be celebrating them. You know, I just told you I make gimlets. They're not very hard to make, you know it's cutting a lime it's squeezing it's shaking it takes about a minute so i I just can't get into these canned cocktails and i I can't believe that's a controversial opinion
0: uh yeah well you're gonna have to um find a time to meet up with elaine duff and fight her because uh she she thinks that uh bars should have a canned cocktail section on the menu and uh you know, it's, it's, it, it's funny. Uh, they just started at the uh, ADI. They just started um, this past year, uh, actually opening it up to uh, judging for RTDs. And, you know, I, one of the more interesting things that I learned in, in actually evaluating some of those is the importance of carbonation uh, and yeah. that if, if it is a cocktail that needs to be carbonated, generally speaking, I think that's where most of them lose their points. And, and to your point, like what's easier than cracking, you know, a, maybe a topo chico like if you're a, if you're a carbonation nut like go out of your way to get one of the more better carbonated waters that is still generally pretty available and then making your you know nice highball with that your your booze and maybe a pinch of salt like i don't see too too much more difficulty with that method rather than you know cracking open a canned cocktail or canned highball, for example, and having a subpar experience. To me, the work to benefit, you know, cost benefit ratio there is highly in favor of the DIY approach.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I suppose they're for when you're on the road, but, you know, there's been, <laughs> there's been a thing called canned beer that's long worked at, uh, you know, sports stadiums and when you're drinking in the park or on a train, so I'm gonna stick with that. Uh, really boozy can cocktails are also weird to me. I, I just don't get them. I've never, you know, felt like I needed to drink a, a a sazerac while I was, you know, hanging on the street corner. But I don't know. They're they're doing well, and if they're they're making money for people that are struggling, that's fine. But I just don't get them.
0: Gotcha. Um, well, you're certainly not alone in that camp. Um, even it, it, it's gonna, it's a very divisive camp, but, but you're certainly not alone on, on your side of that line. So Aaron, thank you for your time today. Uh, for those of our listeners who want to, uh, jump on social media or the internet and give you a hard time about, uh, your stance on canned cocktails, where can they find you to, uh, to yell at you?
1: Well, what's going to happen is uh, a lot of publicists are going to send me nasty emails over the next few weeks. Uh, um, But you can find me on Twitter, Aaron Goldfarb. I don't tweet anything controversial that'll get me canceled. So if you're coming for that, it's not going to happen. I'm on Instagram, also Aaron Goldfarb. I tweet pictures of the booze I'm drinking and whatever things my children are
0: doing. So that's that. Awesome. So we'll have links to, uh, of course, the book, of course, all of your social media handles on the show notes page over at modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast. So please head on over there if you want to uh, cruise along and, and check out uh, some of the things that we talked about in this episode, as well as things like, uh, you know, pictures of the drink that didn't quite make it into gather around cocktails. So Aaron, once again, thanks so much for being on the podcast.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
0: This episode was produced by Edie Frederick, with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed, holiday cocktail insights, courtesy of Aaron Goldfarb, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2020.